You are listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Sunnybrook Church, including our Sunday gathering times and opportunities throughout the week, visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Jeff Mose. Well, good morning. We're in a series we've entitled God Is. We've been taking a look at the attributes or the characteristics of God. And today we come to one that is probably the most widely believed and yet the most often doubted. We're going to talk today about the fact that God is love, more specifically that he's a loving father. Isn't it true it's that second word that gets us into some trouble? Because some of us have had really good fathers. Some of us have had not so good fathers. Some of us had fathers that were very present in our life, and some of us had fathers that were completely absent in our lives. Some of us had fathers that were kind and compassionate, and others had fathers that were extremely angry. The stats today is that in 25% of the homes of the United States of America, it's the highest in anywhere in the world, we have a single parent. 80% of them are moms. You can recognize many of us have sort of daddy issues, if you will. And you recognize, don't you, that our view of our earthly father affects our view of our Heavenly Father. Now let me just give you a few lies I think that are out there with regards to God being our loving Heavenly Father. First of all, some people would say this, well, God is just judgmental. I mean, he's sort of like a principle, if you will. He's just waiting to sort of judge our motives, to judge our actions. But the scripture would say something very different in Psalm 103. The Lord is like the Father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Second lie is just simply this, well, God is angry. I remember growing up as a child, my mom would often say, you wait until your dad gets home. In other words, you think I'm angry right now, you wait until I tell your father what you did, then he's gonna be really angry. We sort of view God as somebody who's just sort of waiting, building this emotion and this anger until eventually just releases it on us. But the scripture says this in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. What is he? He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Third lie with regards to God is just simply this, that God is hateful. And I recognize maybe for a moment that God loves some people, but God certainly doesn't love me. When I look at my own life, my warts, my feelings, what I've done in life, I recognize it's possibly could love somebody else, but he certainly doesn't love me. I've done things wrong again and again and again. Often it's the very same thing. Listen to the scripture from the apostle Paul when he writes, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. And then he says this, while we were yet sinners, Is that not amazing to you? It certainly is to me. While we were still sinning, while we were still living in rebellion toward God, while he knew everything about us and everything we're going to do into the future, while we were still sinners, Jesus loved you so much that he went to the cross of Calvary to redeem us. People, today I want to talk about the very idea of the love of God. And if you have ever struggled with the very love of God, I want you to listen to these words today. Because this is sort of our overarching theme, if you will. 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we, speaking of you and I who know Christ as our Savior, should be called the children of God. And then he says it with an exclamation point. And that is what we are. That's what we are. 
Now, when you hear this verse, I often think there are shouters. We heard one this morning, and then doubters. Shouters are people who go, hey, listen, amen, I am a child of God. That's exactly who I am. The Father has lavished his love on me. And then there are some of us in a different category who are doubters. Yeah, I get that. But I don't feel very loved by the Father. I've got difficulty and pain and struggles and hurts in my life. And I don't feel as though I'm loved. I recognize he's a God of love, but I'm not sure that he loves me. And people, isn't it true for even those of us who are shouters this morning? The reality is at points and times in our life, we doubt the love of God. We've all at some point in time doubted the love of God in our lives. And for that reason, you and I have struggled with acceptance. We struggle with affirmation. We struggle with approval because we're just not sure that we're loved by God. Well, I got a story for you this morning, and it's found in Luke chapter 8, and I want you to follow along. Luke, the physician, writes, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they were been waiting for him. And a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered war 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Pastor, are you kidding me? This whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Somebody deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized she could not stay hidden, when she recognized the jig is up, I better come clean. She began to tremble and fell at his knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Now, these are powerful words. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now let's start in the opening part of this chapter in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. The scripture tells us that there is a father by the name of Jairus. He's a good father. And he's got a daughter who is 12 years of age and she is on her deathbed. So this one who was a good father would do what any good father would do. He's going to come and look for any means of allowing his daughter to be healed. He is a worker, sort of a leader in the synagogue, and you know that the religious people in Jesus didn't get along all of that well, but he makes a decision. He's going to sort of look the other way with regards to that. He may even deny his position, lose his job, but he's going to find some healing for his daughter, so he makes his way through the crowd. He finds Jesus, and the scripture says, he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he begs Jesus, please, my daughter is dying. Would you come with me? The scripture says that Jesus, immediately hearing this, makes his way with him. He walks alongside of him. He goes with Jesus. But eventually, as they're making their way to the house, the crowds are sort of pressing against him, and eventually he stops, and he gives all of his attention to this other woman. Can you imagine what that would be like for the father who wants nothing more than Jesus to hurry to his house? 
The equivalent might be this, that your wife is pregnant and she goes into labor. She's measured a contraction. They're about five minutes apart. And she says to you as the husband, get in the car, let's go. And you get everything in the car. And on the way, you say, hey, I'm a little bit hungry, the husband says. How about we stop through the drive-thru, get a burger and fries on the way? Or better yet, Jeff said there's a good spicy chicken sandwich at Popeye's. Let's go through that drive-thru. I mean, can you imagine what would be going on at your wife at that moment in time? I think that's exactly what's going on in the Father. Are you kidding me? Why in the world, when I just told you that my daughter was on the edge of death, why in the world would you stop? Some of you feel that every single Sunday morning, don't you? Maybe your wife, your husband is a little bit more extroverted than you. they got to stop at every person. Finally go, listen, I'll just wait in the car. And I can't wait all this time for you. I think that's the kind of emotion that is going on inside of this father. Jesus, maybe you didn't understand. Jesus, maybe you didn't get it. Or maybe I'm forming a different opinion about who you are. But Jesus, my daughter is sick. Let's hurry. For me, this is a powerful story, one that is filled with all sorts of emotion. It's actually recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's fascinating about this story is this is actually two miracles sandwiched together. Now, there's some incredible similarities in these two miracles. First of all, both of the victims are female. Secondly, I want you to see both of them are ceremony by Levitical law unclean. One of them because she's bleeding, hemorrhaging, and the other because she is now dead. They weren't allowed to touch either. And the last thing I want you to notice is this. Both of them somehow has the significance of the number 12 in their life. The number 12 for Jewish people was a sign of God's rule. 12 sons to Jacob, eventually 12 tribes of Israel. 12 spies that were sent into the land of Cana in order to explore. 12 jewels that were on the garb that the high priest wore as he made his way into the Holy of Holies. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus selects 12 disciples. When Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000, there are 12 baskets that are left over. And the first words we hear Jesus speak in all of Scripture, he did when he was 12-year-old. Do you remember that? Do you remember when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus? Can you imagine that fight between the two of them? I thought you had the Son of God. I thought you had the Son of God. And then eventually he says, listen, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? It's the first time that he speaks. This word 12 is given to us in the fact that the daughter was 12 years of age. The woman had been bleeding for some 12 years. There is the commonality that both of them would be called daughter. One was the daughter of Jairus. One eventually would be called the daughter of God. And both of them needed a healing touch from Jesus' hand. Those are the similarities. Let me tell you the differences. The little girl, first of all, had no ability to get herself up and to go to Jesus. She was actually on a bed of illness. She didn't have the ability to come to Jesus to seek him out, but she had a father that loved her very much. He spoke on her behalf, and he comes before Jesus and says, Jesus, I plead with you. Come with me and heal my daughter. This little girl was very lucky to have a father that loved her so very much, because the other woman in this story is a woman who has been hemorrhaging for some 12 years. She had some sort of a gynecological problem, and 
That's about as far as this shy Dutch guy will go into that. I remember the first time I visited a woman in the hospital, I asked her what she was in for. I'll never do that again. Sometimes they'll tell you. (laughs) But this woman was really struggling in her life. And as a result of it, she is unclean. And everybody is sort of parting the waters around her as she walks through the town. This is a woman who had been struggling with this problem for some 12 years. It's likely for 12 years nobody had hugged her, nobody had kissed her, nobody had even come close to her. This little girl had a father who was sort of watching out for her, speaking on her behalf, but this woman had nobody, absolutely nobody who could represent her before Jesus. So she makes a decision, she's going to do it on her own. And I want you to walk through this portion of Scripture with me today, and I want to pull out three points that just sort of remind each of us how much God loves us. The first of them is this, He walks with us. You see this in this portion of Scripture. The Scripture says, as soon as the father Jairus shows up, Jesus went with him immediately. Now I think, don't you, just the mere presence of having Jesus with you sort of calms anxiety, don't you think? I mean, isn't it true whenever you and I go through difficulty, when you and I go through pain, just having somebody with the ministry of presence that walks alongside of us makes a difference in our lives? And can I remind you this morning that no matter where you go, in the mountaintops of life or in the deep, difficult valleys, Jesus goes with you. He walks with you every single step of the way. His presence, though we often forget about it, is there. The scripture says this, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord himself goes before us and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I am so thankful that in the body of Christ, God gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the reasons small groups are so critical to the ministry of this church, so that you have opportunity for people to walk alongside of you in the difficulties of life. People who are going to pray before God and ask God to intervene, people that are going to walk with you, listen to you, go through the struggles, who are going to rejoice with you and weep with you. Because isn't it true that sometimes when you and I go through some positives in life, we want to praise God with people around us as well, maybe get a promotion, maybe something good happens in your life just to celebrate with other people? I am so thankful for the tangible evidence of the love of God that he's provided a family in my life. I was thinking the other day, Beth has been walking alongside of me in ministry now for some 40 years. 40 years. I'm thankful for her presence in our life. But here's the reality. No matter how good human beings are, the reality is the presence of God is even better. Here's somebody who will never leave you, never forsake you. Here's somebody who doesn't have an agenda. Here's somebody who walks alongside of you every single step of the way. Can I remind you that the love of God is so evident in your life that no matter where you go, his presence goes with you, he walks with you? But then secondly, I want you to see this. He also stops for us. The scripture says Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? He pauses in that moment in time and he stops as if there's nobody more important in his life than this woman. Think about it for a moment. Is there anybody more important than Jesus? Anybody who should be busier than Jesus? When it comes to ministry, is there anybody that should have more ministry demands on their life than Jesus? But what's fascinating to me, all throughout the New Testament, 
He had this incredible time for people. As if he had nothing else to do but to focus and to fix on this one woman who needed his help. Same is true in our lives. You know, when we see this from a human perspective, we think to ourselves, of course he stopped for Jairus. I mean, this is his daughter. Everybody's got sort of a bent toward little kids in their life. And better than that, Jairus was one of the leaders in the synagogue, and so he was connected. Even though there were struggles between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus was smart enough to recognize this is a man who was well-connected in the community. So for him to stop for Jairus' daughter makes complete sense to us. But this woman that he now stops for was an absolute nobody. She was unclean according to Levitical law. Wherever she went, she had to holler out, unclean coming, and everybody would begin to part. This was a woman who was always on the outside of life, sort of looking in. But Jesus, because of the lavish love of the Father, sets his love and affection and attention on her. Now, for a moment, I just want to turn away from the love of the Father, and I want to talk about this woman because I want to talk about her faith because it's tremendous. I want to give you five things this woman teaches about faith, and then we'll go back to the love of the Father. But first of all, I want you to see this with regards to her faith. Faith requires risk, doesn't it? This was a woman from a very early age who was ceremonially unclean. She had to be kept away from the people around her. She was, by Levitical law, not allowed to touch money. She wasn't allowed to touch food. She wasn't allowed to go to public worship. In fact, wherever she sat, that thing would become unclean. If she ever touched somebody, they would become unclean. And there was all sorts of things they had to go through in order to get unclean once again. So wherever this woman was, people would sort of scatter. But she makes a decision in her life that she's so distraught, the scriptures tell us in other passages that she had spent all of her money on doctors, she recognizes Jesus is her only hope, and so she makes a decision, she is going to risk her very faith and trust in Jesus. She makes her way through the crowd, then eventually she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she risks everything. It's likely the whole weight of the law would have come down on her, rabbinical law, if she had been seen in public, seen in the crowd, seen as touching anybody. But she makes a decision, her faith is going to take a risk. Is it possible that somebody is sort of sensing the Spirit of God saying to you, listen, i got to take a risk with regards to my faith. i got to trust Jesus more. i got to forget about the world and the things that are behind me. i got to give myself fully yielded to Christ. The second thing we learn about faith is this. True faith gets God's attention. What does Jesus say in this portion of Scripture? He says to her, hey, listen, your faith has made you well. There's a sense in which as Jesus is going along, he cries out, who touched me? And you remember the disciples, especially Peter, almost laughs. Are you kidding me? You're in the middle of a crowd. A hundred people have touched you. Why in the world do you even ask who touched you? In fact, the word crowd here in the Greek means to suffocate. So what he's saying is this crowd is so suffocating that they can hardly breathe. There's so many people around. And then the scripture says, who touched me? The word touch comes from a Hebrew word where the root word hapto literally means to cling to or to hold on to and to never let 
go, to fasten yourself to something. So when this woman, as the scripture says, touches him, it's much, much more than that. Jesus is not saying, who touched me? He's saying, listen, who clung to me with saving faith? Who sort of latched themselves to me and never wanted to let go? Who fastened themselves to me in such belief that somehow that they would be healed? Jesus said, listen, I saw the power of God go out from me. Isn't it true that true faith, real belief in God often gets God's attention? And then thirdly, I want you to see this. God's attention to your faith is never divided. It's just not divided. God is never multitasking when he's dealing with you. Ever watched on the playground? I see it sometimes with my grandchildren that Moms will be there at the playground, but they're busy scrolling through Facebook or something else, and the kid is saying, Mom, watch me, watch me. Yeah, I see you, I see you, when she really doesn't. The same is true with regards to our God, but in a much different fashion that he's always got his eyes fixed and focused on you, but he's not multitasking. He's simply giving his attention and his time over to you. For this woman, even though she was an outcast of society, Jesus fixed his eyes on her. I can imagine Jerry's just thinking to himself, Jesus, come on. Jesus, let's get going. But Jesus knew in his hands stood the power of life and death. He was never in a hurry, but always his attention was fixed and focused on who was before him. And thirdly, I want you to see this. God works with imperfect faith, doesn't he? Aren't you glad for that? This was actually not only an act of faith, but it was also an act of superstition. The two of them were kind of mingled together. In this day and age of this lady, it was thought that if somehow you touched the hem of somebody's garment, the clothes in itself had some healing power. It's likely that what Jesus was touched here was his tzitzit. It's possible that he had on a prayer shawl, signifying that he was one of the Jewish leaders in the community, and she reached down and she touched it out of superstition. There were four corners to these robes. Each of them had a blue tassel on its corner, and she tried to touch one of those. It signified they were Jewish, they were chosen. It signified the fact that he was a higher up in the community, and they thought that somehow the clothing that they wore had miraculous power in and of itself. It's one of the reasons Jesus says to this woman, what has saved you? Your faith is saved you. I want you to know it wasn't anything superstitious. It wasn't because you touched my clothes. It was because of your faith that you were healed. People, God works with imperfect faith because none of us have true faith. But the reality is this, God comes toward us in that and he works with imperfect faith. And then fifthly and finally, I want you to see this. When Jesus heals, it's complete. It's absolutely complete. Here was a woman that we see by Jewish law was ostracized from everything. She wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend, wasn't allowed to have a husband, wasn't allowed to have children, none of those kinds of things. Certainly wasn't allowed to worship in a public setting. But now when she comes to trust Jesus, now when this miracle happens in her life, everything is made new. Now for the first time she has an opportunity to have a boyfriend. Now for the first time she's able to get married. Now for the first time she's able to have children and she's able to worship in public. And now for the very first time, this one who had no covering from a father because it was likely because she was ceremony unclean that her father denied her. Now she's actually called a daughter of God. Can I remind you this morning that when Jesus heals, 
He doesn't do it as some sort of circus act, and it's not just physical in nature. It's this complete healing, and she's restored to everything that her heart desired. And then thirdly, and finally, I want you to see this. He also talks to us, doesn't he? He did in this portion of Scripture. He says, daughter, he said to her, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. All throughout Scripture, Jesus has been speaking. He speaks to us primarily through his word to this very day. And the reality is there is a progression for this woman. She is an outcast of society. Now she moves into the crowd where she shouldn't be, and now she reaches out, touches Jesus, and Jesus calls her daughter. Can I just pause for a moment? This is the only time in all of Scripture Jesus calls anybody daughter. Can you imagine what that did to the inside of this woman? This one who had been denied from her family, this one who had been pushed away from her father, now all of a sudden the perfect father comes into her life and he says to her, daughter. Can you imagine how that made her heart sing? And then he says this, go in peace. Better translation, go into peace. Because again, we've already talked about it, but when Jesus heals, he heals completely. She not only became one who was healed from all of her physical infirmities, but now she becomes a daughter of the Most High. Now she comes to trust Christ as Savior and Lord of her life. She goes into peace. Now here's the question I'm sure that you have. Hey, what about the little girl? I'm glad you asked. Let's circle back to that for a moment. Because there's Jesus with this woman who has this issue of bleeding. And now Jairus' friends, servants, come from his house, and they say, in effect, hey, Jairus, stop bothering Jesus. And he's got more important things to do. And I hate to tell you this, but your daughter is dead. Is it over with regards to Jesus? Never. Here is the one who has life and death in his hands. And he makes a decision that he is going to go because things can still be changed. So he walks the rest of the way with Jairus to his house. And then we get this portion of scripture where it says this, but he took her by the hand and he said, my child get out. I just want to remind every single one of you, no matter where you are, there's nothing in your life that's dead if Jesus is involved. Maybe you think your relationship with your husband or your wife is dead, but with Jesus, he has the ability to resurrect. Maybe you think you're dead with regards to your struggle with addiction. Can I just remind you that nothing is dead with regards to God, that he has a power of life and death in his hands, and he resurrected himself, and he can resurrect anything in your life as well. As he tells this little girl, get up. And he resurrected her from the dead, and he can do the very same thing in your life. Why? Because he's this God of love. He's this God that makes a decision. He will walk with you every single day. And when you're hurting, he will actually stop for you. And even though you feel as though nobody notices you, he notices you so much that he actually calls you son and he calls you daughter. And he wants to be involved in your life. So let's come back to the scripture where we started. When the apostle John writes, see... What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? The children of God. The sons and the daughters of God because that 
with an exclamation point is what we are. If you were encouraged by today's talk, check out our Sunnybrook Unscripted podcast, where we talk real life, answer questions, and take a deeper practical look at the topics we talk about on a Sunday morning. For other talks, videos, and live gatherings, rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Download the Sunnybrook Church app or visit us at sunnybrookchurch.org. And again, thanks for listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast.